0: now we're in proverbs chapter 11 slowly plugging away character qualities in verse 16 a gracious woman in verse 17 the merciful man now first of all the negative the wicked worketh a deceitful work not uh, deceitful only in the sense of excuse me that'll sound great on the tape won't it Uh, not only in the sense of lies but uh, that of false appearances uh, that of promising more than uh, than you can deliver the word it's a word that describes that which is hollow inside that which is empty that which uh, makes a promise but cannot fulfill the promise the um, Proverbs chapter ten verse two um, says treasures of wickedness profit nothing. The treasures of wickedness profit nothing. They make great promises. Uh, they they say look at all of the goodies that you have here in Vanity Fair, but actually they're all empty. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 16, The labor of the righteous tendeth to life, the fruit of the wicked to sin. Uh, the, the labor, the, the contrast there really is that the labor is the hard part of it. The fruit is the result of the, of the labor generally. But even the labor for the believer in Christ and for the, the righteous man tendeth toward life, and uh, the the, the uh, difficult part of the whole system actually is uh, th- is good, and yet the fruit, the the end result, that which you finally arrive at, the thing that you would expect to be the time of harvest, the time of joy, even that uh, tends towards sin. Another illustration of this same thing is is the the man in uh, uh, Matthew uh, chapter seven. where where Christ is speaking of the wise man and the foolish man. He that hears these words of mine and uh, does them shall be likened unto the wise man who built his house on the rock. Solid foundation. A foolish man is the man that hears these words and does not do them. And he shall be likened to the man that builds his house on the sand. They both build a house. They both have a foundation. One has rock. The other has sand. The same storm hits the same At the same time, the same floods come, the man on the rock, his house stands firm. The man who has a superficial foundation has nothing lasting, nothing that endures. Earlier in chapter 11, we we learned a little bit about this in verse 4 when we saw that riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The riches and the wealth that one would accumulate in life and would have some kind of an idea that it was, going to, uh, it was going to bring him profit. He's going to be very disillusioned because it actually is going to profit him nothing. I would like you to um, uh, pop over to um, James chapter 4 for just a moment. James chapter 4. In James 4, there's there is a uh, little sequence. James, of course, is the Proverbs of the New Testament. It deals with the very practical issues of life. There are over 50 commands in uh, the book of James, and um, all of them are are pithy type things like we find in the book of Proverbs. But here in verse 13, it it really tells you something that every, every man should know and understand. It says, Come now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Now that just sounds like a good businessman, right? After all, he's, he's got uh, his objectives in mind. Uh, he, he knows where he's going. He knows how long it's going to take. He knows, he has calculated the risk. He recognizes the, uh, all of the, uh, the profit that can be gained as a result of this year-long business venture. All right? And uh, it tells us that it's speaking specifically to such a man, the one that says, I'm going to do this and thus and so. In verse 14 then, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the next day, let alone the next year, you don't know what's going to happen. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. When you consider the risk, you've got to you've got to reckon on the fact that tomorrow has no guarantees. That even your life, which you you know, if you're going to do much business in a year's time, you've got to have that stuff. You know, you got to be alive, and you can't even guarantee that. So then it goes on. It says. For what you ought to say is, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this and that. If the Lord wills. Right? Now, he goes on and says this, But now ye rejoice in your boastings. Now there's an interesting word that is almost the equivalent of this word, Sheker, that we find in our text. The word is, of course, a Greek word, A-L-A-Z-O-N-E-I-A. And that word was a word that was used for a medicine man, a wandering quack, that would pull his wagon around from place to place, would hold up a bottle of elixir, and would say, This will cure your gout, this will cure your baldness. This will cure everything. And the, the, the man, flat out, could not deliver what he advertised. He was a false advertiser. And he would say, this is a good product. This will do, do for you. Somebody would say, but I got warts. Oh, it'll take care of warts too. You know, take care of anything. And the, the word, after a period of time, came to mean any individual, including politicians, who would offer something they couldn't produce. They would say, this will do this, or I will do this, or I guarantee this, and they couldn't produce. And here it's being spoken of, just as simple a thing, as a man saying, here's my plans for the next year, when you ought to put DV in front of everything you do. Now, this doesn't mean you have to use the words. I hate to hear people just glibly use words. DV is Deo uh, Viote, God willing. That's Latin. But the, the idea is, if God be willing, I will do thus and so. Sometimes I get a letter from a person and they would say several things and at the end of the letter they'd put DV. God willing. Everything I've said above, God willing. You see, the point is we're still dealing with a sovereign God. And we can make no guarantees apart from that sovereign will of God. You can't even guarantee that you'll get to work today. You can't guarantee that. Not a one of us has that guarantee. And because of that, we have to be careful that we don't have this vain kind of boasting. Boasting of things we cannot do. But you see now, the evil man, the wicked, Work a deceitful work. Wickedness is a work that deceives its performer. It may accomplish its purposes against another, but it will never reap the benefit it di- desires for itself. It's a principle of sowing and reaping. Suppose you took some small pebbles, prepared the soil very carefully, took the pebbles and dyed them to look like seed and then you sow those pebbles, what will you produce? Nothing. Right? It's just as foolish to think that you can sow wickedness and reap blessing. It's like taking pebbles and throwing them to the wind, hoping it'll produce something in the process. It is impossible for them to produce. No matter how they appear, no matter how they've been disguised, and Satan is constantly saying, do this wicked thing, go ahead and do it, it's going to end up alright, everything's going to be fine, it's not fine. I am so amazed at how people can complicate their lives. We in the ministry spend a good amount of our time just trying to untangle the, the terrible web and people get, talk about complicated lives. You know, I I I suppose that people think my life's boring compared to theirs. i really there's there's a a wholesome simplicity to to our life. You know, I only got one wife. I don't have any girlfriends. You know, Uh, we all uh, walk the straight and narrow. You know, and I you know I I really I really think sometimes people would look at that and they say, wow, you know, because it's not a complicated life. It's very straightforward and very simple joyous, wonderful, marvelous, but not complicated. You know what complicates my life? Other people. Other people. Because there's so many, you know, a Gal came to me a few years ago and she she said she said that uh, I've got some problems. And um, okay, tell me about your problems. Well, now the man I'm married to now is my seventh husband. And then she started in and began to tell me the details of how this all worked. And, and the problem was that with each husband she got, each succeeding one, everyone got a little worse. And she wished, what she really wanted to do more than anything else was go back to the first husband, which scripture says she couldn't do even if all six of the others died, right? But she said, the, be- the best one of all was that first one. I thought I knew what I wanted, but I discovered I don't even know what I want. See, complicated lives. And boy, I went home and I told Gloria, I said, well, I'm, glad. I'm glad you're my wife and I'm glad that I- there's only one of you, because <laughs> I just heard a story you wouldn't believe, you know? Terrible. It goes on all of the time and people get more and more complicated. This happens and that happens and there's an intricate web that's woven and if I wouldn't have told that lie then I wouldn't have had to tell this lie and if I wouldn't have done this then I wouldn't have had to do this and it it becomes so complicated, so simple just to be honest. Tell the truth. Now get yourself into deeper and deeper trouble. Well, learn that and learn that there is a wholesome simplicity that God wants us to have In our lives. From the book of Hosea. Hosea, chapter 10. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, not in wickedness. Sow to yourself in righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Now look at verse 13. Cause and effect. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because thou didst Trust in thy way, in the multitude of thy mighty men. Therefore, shall a tumult arise among thy people, and all thy fortresses shall be spoiled, as Shalman spoiled Betharbel in the day of battle. The mother was dashed in pieces upon her children. So shall Bethel do unto you because of your great wickedness. In a morning shall the king of Israel be utterly cut off. Boy, you sow to wickedness, you're not going to reap mercy. Everybody wants mercy, but they want to sow to wickedness too. Now, Galatians 6, 8, and 9 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. There's a, one well-known author that, that kind of pooh uh, poos that verse. He makes a very serious theological mistake. He says that when God forgives sin, there is no longer to be a guilt trip. He's right. When sin is forgiven, we shouldn't have a guilt trip. But in the process, he also implies that God then removes all consequences of that sin. And that's not true. God doesn't want you to have guilt. But the consequences of sin are an inevitable result of sin. You don't sow wild oats and pray for crop failure. There are there are consequences to sin that are natural consequences. And uh, um, you should understand that when you sin those consequences are inevitable and they're going to come now if you get right with God somewhere along the way the, the pain of that can be, can be brought to blessing even the consequences of sin can be turned out to be a blessing and I wouldn't deny that at all but then in order to prove the point that he's made concerning guilt He uses this verse and says you can't apply this verse to that sort of a thing. And the reason that you can't is because the context is talking about paying the preacher. You look at the the verse just before, and it'll it'll tell you that when somebody communicates the word to you, then you're to, to remunerate him financially, all right? It says that it's talking about that kind of sewing. It's not talking about the other. They made two very serious mistakes. First mistake is this the consistent teaching of this principle taught in Galatians and applied primarily to that context is taught without that kind of a relationship throughout throughout the old and new testament that you reap what you sow the other thing is the all inclusive nature of what's being said there it's being used as an illustration of paying the preacher, all right? But it says, whatsoever you sow, that shall you also reap. And then, if you sow, that is in anything, to the flesh, you'll of the flesh reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you will of the Spirit reap life everlasting. The application is still good to the context, but the application is much broader than merely the context, because it goes on then and talks Uh, in the next chapter about the relationship we have with people that sin and all of that. So there's a broader context than just merely the verse that precedes, and that's a mistake. God does take away your guilt, rightfully so, when you confess your sin and call it sin. But if you think that you can do something, you think that that you can have uh, an adulterous affair as an example, and not catch a social disease, or if you confess your sin, the social disease disappears, or, or someone gets pregnant, or something of that sort. And that you, you, Just because you get right with God, all of the sudden, uh, there's a spontaneous um, abortion of the child, uh, just simply because you got right with God, that God takes away the consequences of sin. I've got news for you. You're barking up the wrong tree. It just doesn't work that way. It never has. And I don't know of a single, a single person that has deliberately sinned against life, but what there have been lingering consequences for many times years afterward. And if you learn to walk with God in the midst of that, then of course the scar in your life can become a meaningful warning to you. David was an example. and if ever there was a man who confessed his sin, it would have been David. Psalm 51 is one of the most agonizing confessions of sin you would ever find. I, I think that if somebody got up and quoted Psalm 51 verbatim in a meeting, if people in that meeting didn't know Psalm 51, they would say, hey, uh, boy, that person's really overdoing it in confession of sin. I mean, you know, he, that's just a little too specific and uh, a little too emotional, maybe. I mean, David really confessed his sin. And you know what Nathan said to him? He said, David, God has heard your prayer. And you have been forgiven your sin. Nevertheless, you're going to lose your family. Nevertheless, the child died, you remember. The child that would be born died. And after the child and then after the child died, then David lost. He lost Absalom to rebellion and ultimately to death. He lost Ammon. He he, he just right down the line you know David's kingdom the glory of all that David did even though David in the end was called a man after, his own, after God's own heart even though Solomon was told by God himself if your kingdom could only be like your father's if you would only walk in the way of God like your father did and David was used as a tremendous a- example of a man of God yet from the moment he sinned with Bathsheba his kingdom started going downhill he had nothing. He had been a brilliant warrior up to that time. He'd never lost a battle. Everything was going David's way. It was a marvelous thing. After that, David lost all kinds of battles, and the kingdom began to deteriorate. He was a forgiven man. But you don't trifle with sin because sin has built-in consequences. When will we ever learn that? I say again when we're dealing with the wrath of God, the wrath of God can be seen in two ways. The wrath of God can be seen in an overt act of God in, in, in demonstrating His power against sin because of His permanent hatred for sin. God will sometimes act in, a, in an act of judgment like Sodom and Gomorrah. But the acts of judgment of God, where God intervenes in a miraculous way to judge sin, are rare. Noah and the ark, Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of Jerusalem, etc., etc., etc. There are a number of places where God has stepped in and went zap, but that's not the usual pattern. You know what the usual pattern is? With every sin, there is a consequence, and the wrath of God is merely allowing that consequence to happen. And you, you wonder why why there is is a social disease today in the United States that is unprecedented. A newscaster called it just yesterday. I was driving home, and this newscaster said it's the inevitable fruit of the sexual revolution. And that's something the man understands a little theology. The inevitable fruit of the sexual revolution. Reader's Digest a couple of months ago now had an article about the sexual revolution getting sidetracked. People are getting back to staying with the same woman for life and things like that. All that boring stuff, you know? Why? Because you got a problem here. People are dying. People are going blind. People are having all kinds of problems with gonorrhea and syphilis and now AIDS. See? Listen, you don't trifle with this stuff. Can a man take fire into his bosom and not be burned? That would be ridiculous. You can't play with sin. You play with sin, sooner or later you're going to get burned. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. verse 4 and the serpent said unto the woman you shall not surely die I had somebody asked me the other day said if, if there's a god why is there so much sickness suffering and death in the world <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with it in fact there's a god It has to do with the fact that man has violated the very purpose for which he was created. And God said, you do that, you die. It's as simple as that. And man did it, and that's what happened. Let God betray, let every man be a liar. You can trust God. You can't trust Satan. Satan says, you won't die. I think the implication here is that Satan was saying to her, go ahead and try it, see if you drop dead. You're not going to drop dead. God wasn't talking about dropping dead physically at the moment of eating the tree. God was talking about separation from him. God was talking about spiritual death. And the inevitable consequence of the spiritual death was ultimate physical death. Adam and Eve could have lived in that garden forever, enjoyed the presence of God every day, marvelous existence. We have no idea how long they had existed there in the garden previous to this sin. Maybe it was a matter of weeks or days. Maybe it was a matter of years. We don't know. We're not told. But the fact is they could have enjoyed that presence of God. They could have enjoyed that beautiful paradise without any problems, without any sorrow, without any sickness, without any death, and they could have enjoyed it forever. Satan says, Oh, come on. God isn't being fair to you and tell you you can't eat this tree. I mean, after all, what kind of a God is that that would tell you you can't have something that you can see, obviously, is good. All of the trees of the garden they could eat, including the tree of life, so they'd live forever. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, no way. God said, don't eat of that. I'll give you everything. And that's like God. You know, God said, I'll give you all of this, not this. And we said, oh, I want that. You know, we're so dumb. We take the thing he forbids. Satan says, don't worry about it. Look at what it says in verse 5. For God does know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. As if that's all there is to God. The fact that he knew good and evil. I mean, you know, talk about a narrow theology. Satan was really fouled up. All there is, the only difference between you and God is you don't know the difference between good and evil and God does. If you knew the difference between good and evil, you wouldn't even need God. Huh, that sounds great. Oh, we're so silly. So stupid. It's the fruit of wickedness. Matthew chapter 4 verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil taketh him up Christ up into an exceedingly high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, wouldn't it be nice to have all of it, saith unto him, all these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. All you have to do, one simple act. Now look, you know Christ, Christ the God-man, knew the inevitability of the suffering of the cross knew the separation from God. What was Satan offering? Satan was just offering a shortcut. You worship me, just fall down and say, oh, Satan, he has a tremendous desire to be worshipped. God is worthy. Satan is worthless. And Satan wants to be made worthy because that will inflate his ego and make him feel like he's accomplished his goals in being like God. He wants to be worshipped. And if Christ, If Christ could have bowed down and worshipped Satan, Satan was prepared to give up the kingdoms of this world. He would have had everything he wanted. And he would have damned everybody to a Christless eternity. And Christ said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only. I mean, that's the worst possible thing he could have said for Satan's viewpoint. There's only one worthy of worship, and that's God. No way will I worship you under any conditions. Guess what? Every time you choose to do something that you know God doesn't want you to do, you choose to worship Satan. You're saying, Satan, you've got a point. I'll tell you something right now. He's got no points. The trouble is, an old nature that agrees totally Satan is right, so you see, you begin with that bent toward sinning anyway. And you want to know what he says is good. And you don't want to do what God says is right, except from the standpoint of your new nature. And if you're not walking in fellowship with God, you're going to be prone to go your own way. Now, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone unto his own way. Lean not onto your own understanding.